This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs, featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, I'm Joan Newberger, editor of Not Even Past and professor in the Department of History here at UT Austin, and I am your host for this episode of 15-Minute History. Today we're here with Benjamin Wright, who's in the Communications Department at the Briscoe Center for American History here at UT Austin, one of our great archives of uh, documents and objects and other things in U.S. history. Ben, welcome to 15-Minute History. Thanks for having me. Well, I should say welcome back because uh, we've already done an episode with you. Today our subject is World War I at UT Austin, and Ben's been doing research on the impact of the war at UT on a sort of typical college campus in a lot of ways. So let's start right there. The U.S. entered World War I just about 100 years ago. The war started in Europe in August 1914, so quite a bit earlier. Mm -hmm. But the U.S. declared war on Germany on April 6, 1917. People at UT Austin weren't really thinking much about the war at that point, were they? What was going on at UT in 1917? UT in 1917 is this small university compared to today. We're talking about 3,000 students. You know, UT is a rather scrubby tract of land north of the Capitol complex in Austin. The tower hasn't been built yet. The main building is sort of crumbling and falling apart, uh, but is where most of the, the teaching goes on. It's nevertheless the largest college in the southwest. Uh, It's endowed by a million acres of resource-rich land. And so there's this sort of positive, hopeful dynamic on campus. And, And it's also the place where you go to enhance your studies if if you're a sort of middle-class Texan at the time. It's also, uh, as uh, um, which has been pretty constant through UT history, it's it's politically vulnerable university at the time. The Board of Regents are political appointees as they are uh, to this day. And the university is embroiled in this um, power struggle with uh, Governor James Ferguson, which is something that remains on the front page of the Daily Texan throughout the uh, latter part of the spring semester in 1917, as much as the war. But it is something that that the war eventually consumes whole. And um, you see this from the fall of 2017, uh, 1917, that the war is really the all-consuming context within which we find campus. So let's start there then. Um, once the war started, as you've written about actually in an article in the UT Alumni magazine, the Alcalde, once the war started, it had a huge impact on campus, didn't it? What, what happened first? We, we start with the declaration of war by Congress, April 6th. Uh, 1917. The the transformation of UT is as sudden as it is comprehensive. It's more or less overnight. April 7th, um, classes are cancelled. A parade is hastily planned for the Saturday. The Texan declares that everyone is going to walk. And so really at the very start, you have this coercive element, to, uh, which is a harbinger of, of things 
to come over the next 18 months. So what, what did they mean by that, everybody's going to war? Was the military training was required? So really, by the but within two weeks of the declaration of war, military training for all students, uh, military classes for all students uh, are rolled out. For um, all men or for women as well? So the men are required to drill. Um, and, and I must say, as much as uh, the coercive element can be emphasized in this, there was a lot of voluntary involvement as well. This was an enthusiastic, the war was enthusiastically received on campus. Women were um, expected to volunteer with the Red Cross. They were also expected to take uh, accredited classes and in things like uh, nursing and hygiene and food conservation. And they played an important social role in sort of sending, sending the men off to camp, uh, um, sort of collections. There was even a collection at one point to sort of clean up the barracks because they were worried about the vice in infesting the barracks. Um, so they were sort of keeping an eye on their, you know, future husbands, if you like, <laughs> to make sure that they behave themselves. Uh-huh. Yes. And what was training like? There, there was a school of military aeronautics here. Yeah, um, Central Texas is. Uh, th- this side of the hill country, at least, is pretty flat. And so uh, the weather's good all round as well. And so across Texas, you had a lot of military training activity just because it's much better to um, to have your basic training in in January, February, November, December in Texas than, say, in the northeast, for example, where the mm-hmm. weather's not as kind. But that combination of flat, prairie, and weather meant that it was it was one of the um, places selected for a flight school. And the flight school, which is actually at the little campus, sort of at I-35 and Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, it's one of the um, sort of war activities that captures the imagination on campus, the idea of, you know, people taking to the skies at incredible speeds and, and altitudes and doing having sort of daring feats of, of military grandeur and that sort of thing, which is interesting because the reality of being a, a, a conscript in World War One, a draftee, is that you get sent to a camp in sort of in the San Antonio area or you're enlisted on campus in the barracks here. You live in barracks. You make your bed, you march, you train with um, with a piece of wood because the rifles haven't arrived, you get bitten by bugs, and you're bossed around uh, by, um, I think it was the O'Calder referred to as unwhiskered officers from third-rate colleges. So there's a real <laughs> sort of, you know, the, 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 there's an annoyance. UT's a pretty privileged place in, mm-hmm. in 1917. And so these officers get sent, and there are some there are some class struggles there, and there's and class resentment between the officers and the students that they've been charged with. Uh, the food is called, a, I, th- I think they all call, they called it alleged food and gastronomic atrocity. <laughs> so the reality of actually being a sort of military drafty versus being a school of military aeronautics cadet is very different. Mm-hmm. And then do we know anything about conditions in Europe, about Longhorns who went and fought in France? So we get a steady stream from the Daily Texan of sort of happenings, Longhorn happenings in Europe. There are, there are discussions of flight cadets who graduate and then go to France and battle in daring raids on German territory. Whenever a Longhorn dies, it's reported. And so you have this sort of roll of the dead column in the Texan, which gets longer and longer, mm-hmm. which... Um, 
and people have misgiving increasing misgivings about but the texan i think as historians we have to be skeptical with the information in the texan for example i found one account where they're talking about a ut alum who was shot through the heart by a sniper's bullet which was pr spin which is common pr spin in europe that's what you told grieving mothers mm. where the reality is just you know people wasted away and mm-hmm. caught in barbed wire being while people took pot shots at them mm-hmm. so that was sort of that sort of raised um, some skepticism in me I, and I think a better source often are diaries and uh, scrapbooks mm-hmm. uh, which individual soldiers kept and have ended up in UT collections such as those as Edward Crane or George Petty and, uh, and there are several others as well. Uh-huh. So we have letters and diaries from some of the men who fought. We do, yeah, letters home to their mothers, which again, I think we have to have a certain academic skepticism to what people say uh, you uh-huh. know, in their letters home to their mothers. They're, they talk about, you know, George Petty, for instance, talks about dining in French restaurants on officer leave. Edward Crane talks about running on the spot while journeying over on a boat from New York to France. Mm-hmm. And there are references to... German U-boats and things like that. But of course, these are letters to mother and so they're... Well, but we, we got a mum, don't worry about it. And it's interesting, actually, if you compare Edward Crane, who was a, a field captain uh, in, the art- in a Texas artillery unit, uh, he gets sent to Germany after the war for occupation duty and ends up being a, becoming a counter-espionage officer. And you compare his letters home to his counter-espionage reports, which are full of stories of troops dying from cocaine use, troops being drunk after payday, and German wine shops being sort of sold out mm. of house and home. They're full of stories of Sinn Féin propaganda among uh, anxieties that Sinn Féin are, are uh, infesting barracks with propaganda. Um, whether we For are, Irish independence. Indeed. Um, and that German Bolshevik propaganda is appearing sort of underneath lavatory seats saying things mm-hmm. like you've got to go because someone's taking your job mm-hmm. um, for going... the russian revolution right so the the sources are interesting because you, you you really have to take a holistic approach if you're going to paint a reliable picture of what it was really like mm-hmm. and speaking of then painting a picture um you mentioned earlier that as the role of men who were killed gets longer and longer. People are becoming less enthusiastic about the war effort. How is the Daily Texan reflecting that? What you see is passive-aggressively. <laughs> to uh, uh, In short, what, what you see, you see this especially in the Cactus yearbooks, which is naturally a sort of retroactive form of aggression against the war where people talk about not having enough sugar to get by they make comments about unwhiskered officers you also see uh, a sort of anonymous notice board printed in uh, the cactus where people can criticize the war freely and they talk about not being able to study and not being able to fight you see comments like belgium got off easy and there's even a comment um, about one of the officers in charge teaching us how to die as well as live during the flu epidemic so you see rather sorry during the flu epidemic mm-hmm. and so you see you see some rather cutting comments but of course it's after the fact and it's anonymous which i think sort of speaks to the rather stifled first amendment culture you have on campus during the war 
We're talking about a time when professors were fired for pacifism, where uh, pro-war professors were very clear with students that this was a just war and that they could take they could take a gun in one hand or they they needed to take a white feather in the other. You know, so it's a very you get this very claustrophobic, coercive, and academically stifled um, mm-hmm. atmosphere. Uh, mm-hmm. emerges during the war. Were there resistors? Were there men who refused to fight or didn't want to fight? Or You, you mentioned a pacifist. So the interesting thing about this was they found that not, there's not a huge lot of discussion in the Texan, for example, of, of students actively resisting. I think as, if you compare that with the 1960s student mm-hmm. publications where this is very openly talked about and even celebrated, it's a taboo subject during World War One. There are um, sort of just the facts, ma'am, reports of several professors being fired for pacifism. One, Professor Keesby, who is a, a pretty run-of-the-mill social democrat, who uh, act, sort of during the summer break in 1917 is campaigning for peace as part of, in the Midwest and is fired over the phone by the Board of Regents when, mm. when sort of reports filter back. There was another professor called uh, Professor Prokush who, in the German Studies Department who was very clear about his patriotism, wore an American flag on his pin, was an Austrian-born citizen, and his situation becoming untenable because in trying to teach students about German political machinery compares the Reichstag to the U.S. Senate. Mm-hmm. And so this their is parliament, an, right, and that's... And that's this is seen as an affront that, mm-hmm. that, you know, how dare you compare our democratic institutions with their autocratic institutions and just very quickly unravels from there. Mm-hmm. So you see, you see evidence of a very trigger-happy campus culture mm-hmm. when it comes to sort of open discussion. I think it's clear from the the lack of protest in the text and the lack of, and sort of the way criticism is in hindsight, that students got the message. There is a Texan article that mentions 400 students being dropped from the rolls for not enrolling in military courses and not yeah. enrolling in military training on campus. Now, that's a figure from the Daily Texan. It hasn't been a figure I've been able to substantiate with other news reports. And it's likely that some of it was simply that people just enlisted. They went home and enlisted. Or they just went home and worked. So I'm going to take a couple of semesters off here and go help dad on the farm. Or sort of other sort of clerical errors. But if you think about 400 students out of a student body of of 3,000, it's a tremendous amount. Mm Mm-hmm. And one thing that you wrote about that has some resonance for today has to do with uh, Regents' activity, checking up on the faculty. So can you tell us a little bit more about this? You wrote that they checked the nationality and immigration status of every faculty member? Yes, uh, there were resolutions passed that you sort of, uh, for enemy aliens couldn't be on the payroll. There was an audit of alien, enemy aliens. And, and how were they defined? How was it? Uh, as, as German-born. And, uh, and, and it's not clear how they widen the net. This gentleman, Professor Prokush, we talked about, was Austrian-born. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was criticised for his writings. The US technically, um, you know, Austria was a um, an ally of Germany, but it, mm. the U.S. declared war on Germany and was at war with Germany. Um, 
And so that might have been what saved his bacon for a few years. Mm. But but yeah, there's this there's this audit of campus to make sure that and they also just they do an audit of the immigration status of people and they find that there are professors who, like myself today, are green card holders and have not sort of took the plunge, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're gently and uh, encouraged to to get moving with citizenship to sort of show which side uh, they're on. Mm-hmm. Did people want to commemorate the war right afterwards, or did they have a sense that this was a tragedy, we should just move on? What what sort of efforts were there? The pendulum swings in the sense that as soon as the war finishes, it finishes quickly, life returns to normal somewhat in 1919, and you almost get the sense of people coping by not talking about it and just getting on. In fact, there's a Hemingway story, uh, a character called Howard Krebs. Uh, it's a short story by Hemingway, and sort of he gets at the um, he gets at the mentality that the story is about this returning soldier. In fact, it's called a soldier returns. And um, Krebs, the lead character, did not want to talk about the war after all, quote, uh, later he felt the need to talk, but no one wanted to hear about it. So this is very sort of sort of just get on with it attitude that rises up. But then you see a change sort of uh, in the 20s where UT students, faculty and alumni work together to create the largest World War One monument in Texas and possibly in the nation which is the Texas Memorial Stadium today, Dow mm-hmm. K. Royal The football Memorial stadium. Stadium. Yeah, 13 acres, um, you know, several stories high. This is the, the student, faculty, and alum-led memorial. The other uh, World War Mon- Memorial on campus is the Littlefield Memorial Fountain, which is pretty unique in the sense that it's not simply a World War One monument. It's a World War One and Confederate monument sort mm-hmm. of fused into into one. And when um, was that built? That was commissioned in 1918. The sculpture was created in the 20s, and it was finally put together in 1932, being unveiled in 33. Mm. And so it's definitely a World War One monument. If you go to the Littlefield Fountain, the symbolism is is clearly World War One. You've got this ship being towed over the Atlantic Ocean by wild horses of war carrying the goddess Columbia, who symbolizes American freedom, and there's army and navy characters as well. I mean it's this tremendously evocative allegory of, mm. of American involvement in World War One. I think it's pretty fair to say that most people walking by it today don't recognize the symbols as being connected with World War One. Right, absolutely. Well, we can tell from listening to you that you're from England. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> where in pretty much every town, every city, there are at least one memorial of World War One. So many people were killed. It was su- such a had such a huge cultural impact. Mm-hmm. And that seems very different than the commemoration of World War One in the United States. Is that something that you're that you're conscious of? This I think this is something I'm gonna spend my academic life trying to get to the bottom of, mm-hmm. which is the difference between commemoration of World War One uh, in America as compared to Europe. World War One gets swallowed up in the American mind by World War Two. Before that, if you see this in the 20s and the 30s, you see it in the reaction against Wilsonianism 
in the 1920s. You see it in the way that really by the late 20s, every liturgical denominational church, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, had made public statements repenting of their war fervor. World War I ends up with this sort of Vietnam-like dynamic where, uh, you know, this wasn't our business. It cost tremendous amounts of money and lives, and it just completely disrupted our way of life at home. Roosevelt, I think, has a lot to do with sort of putting that kind of sentiment to bed. And then, obviously, World War II is, at least as it's portrayed in the culture and, and our cultural memory, is this fabulously successful war on tour where um, America is the world's saviour. Um, in Europe, I think... World War Two remains seen through this sort of World War One lens, where it's sort of almost seen as the comeuppance we deserved for being idiots 30 years previous. Whereas I think the way Americans think of World War Two, they don't think of World War One very much at all on a sort of collective memory level. It's fascinating how differently they're, mm-hmm. they're perceived. Yeah. It's really a fascinating comparison from village to village, town to town, city to city, country to country. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Soviet Union also, the memory of World War One was somewhat muted after the revolution and the Civil War, so interesting. Right. Yeah, I hadn't thought how sort of... Um, and am I right thinking World War Two in Russia is known as the Great Patriotic War? Yes, and, and in, in a way, every town in Russia anyway has a memorial that looks like the World War One memorials in... Uh, in England and France, because right. they're everywhere. Everybody lost people everywhere. Well, thanks, Ben. This is a really fascinating topic, and it's always great to have local history because I know we have listeners from all over the all over the country, all over the world. But for especially for people living here, it's uh, it gives us a new perspective on our university. Yeah, thanks for coming in. You're welcome. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the iTunes U app for iOS or the Tunes Viewer app for Android. You can also access the 10 most recent episodes through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive editor is Joan Newberger, and our technical editor is Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services, Jacob Weiss, Morgan Honecker, Will Kurtzner, Samantha Skinner, and Michael Heidenreich. Special thanks also to Michael DeLeon, iTunes U Site Administrator with Project 2021 and Educational Innovation. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.